Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Praise you, Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Father, when we say that we trust you, that we have faith in you, what we're saying is, Lord, we, we believe you. We, we trust you, Lord. Our faith is not wishful thinking. Our faith is trust. We trust you. your understanding is unsearchable, that your ways are past finding out. Lord, you can be trusted this morning, and so we worship you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Good morning. Well, we are going to continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. If you want to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse uh, 15. I pray that this has been a blessing to you so far. Last week I told Andrew, I was like, bro, why don't you just take the whole thing? He was on fire. <laughs> I was just exploding with, with praise uh, last week. It was just glorious. Just hearing the gospel just unfolded in, in this first chapter is, is glorious. This is a place that I run to regularly for my personal edification uh, in my walk with the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, it was a, just a, a little bit of review. Obviously, you know, the great challenge of this series is we could spend a year on each verse <laughs> because there's so much. Um, and uh, we want to make it through. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep on plowing ahead. But the Ephesians has been rightly called by scholars the summit of the scriptures. The, everything that we've been waiting to hear the gospel that we've been waiting to hit our ears is unfolded in a precious way in the book of Ephesians. And uh, Paul is um, writing this from prison, uh, and it just makes it even more glorious that he's unfolding these truths. Um, probably, you know, he's under house arrest, I, I believe, and, uh, but it doesn't stop Paul from exalting and praising his God. Um, because our outward circumstances don't change anything in terms of who God is and what he's done. And so praise is always the right response. Paul says, you know, give thanks in all circumstances. Can you do that? We need the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Because he's worthy of our praise and our thanks in every single thing that we walk through. Because even in the negative things, he's using it to conform us into his image. And so we could thank him for that. 
So one of the great emphasis here in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul is stressing, and we started to hit it in, uh, in worship, is the, really the strength of God's will, his power to accomplish all that he desires uh, to accomplish. When God desires to do something, he does not ask permission to do it. He didn't consult me this morning to see how the day should go. He does what he wants, and I'm thankful for that because I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> half the time, most of the time, and I'm just so thankful for that. I, I, I'm thankful that he didn't wait for me to ask for a Savior, for him to send a Savior. Right. Before you were a thought in your parents' minds, thousands of years before that, he had already accomplished salvation. This is the God that we serve, the God that's never behind the eight ball. <laughs> he's never put in a predicament because he's in all places at all times, in all times at all times. <laughs> he's outside of time. This is our great God. And I, I hope today at the what I entitled this uh, section, 15 to 23, is the knowledge of God. And I hope today to lift the knowledge of God in your hearing. Your God is greater than you think he is, greater than I think he is. The greatest revelation that we have of God, he's higher than that. And the rest of eternity will be unfolding his endless glory, his manifold excellencies. <laughs> and I'm just looking forward to uh, talking to you today about this. This is glorious. But just quick review of this as well. Um, we see in the first uh, 11 verses, we see his will is mentioned three times in the first 11 verses. He predestined us to adoption according to the purpose of his will, making known in verse 9 the mystery of his will. And verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so again, Paul is just stressing God is, God is powerful. And we'll go on to read the immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked towards us who believe. So let's read our, our text for today, uh, Ephesians 1, 15. Uh, I hope that I don't uh, just blast off through the ceiling because I'm so excited. <laughs> for this reason, because I have read, uh, sorry, because I have heard of you, uh, faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as this goes forth, that it would fall on good soil, that it would go deep and it would uh, produce fruit, uh, the fruit that you prepared for it to. Lord, we thank you for your power to transform us and your power to lift our vision. Lord, today, expand our capacity uh, to know you. Expand our uh, thoughts of you, our, our ability to, uh, to see you and meditate upon how glorious you are, God. We ask just for a little bit more, a little bit more capacity to, to hold this knowledge of God. Lord, the angels that are in your throne room, they're covered in eyes that they might see you in every different way, in every different facet to behold you, God. So we ask, Lord, give us fresh eyes to see you this morning. To see you is to love you. And we do love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So why the knowledge of God? Well, Paul is pointing us to uh, the knowledge of God because it is the sum and substance of eternal life and happiness. I'll read a few quotes to you, and I'm not sure if I'll get to this book, but if you want a, a primer on the uh, knowledge of God, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, um, just let it blow your mind. <laughs> He's amazing. Uh, Michael Reeves um, said, Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It's about knowing God. By knowing God, our behavior changes, but we don't change our behavior out of our own strength. We become like him because we behold him. A.W. Tozer, the Christian is strong or weak depending on how closely he has cultivated the knowledge of God. J.I. Packer, he says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So everything that we learn about God, in order for us to it not just remain head knowledge, the, the facts that we could rattle off, for it to become intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge, we must take that truth and bring it into the presence of God in prayer and praise and meditation in his presence on that truth, and we experience him in that way. It takes it from the mind and puts it in our heart. And it becomes real to us. It becomes, instead of just a fact, it becomes reality um, in our hearts. So what is the knowledge of God? Well, it, is, it isn't just facts, as we said, but it is knowing him directly. It is knowing him experientially, um, as the Puritans would call it, experimentally. <laughs> we know him directly. He can be known. God can be known because he has disclosed himself to us. God could not have been known if he didn't disclose himself to us. Man cannot climb his way to God by formulations and postulations of what we think God is like. That's how we create idols. But it is not how we know God. God must disclose himself to us in order for us to know him uh, personally and intimately. And primarily this happens through his word and through the illumination of his spirit. 
You can know about celebrities and, and famous people, but no one knows them like their spouse knows them. It's not enough to be able to rattle off the facts, although facts are necessary for intimate relationship. You have to connect them with direct contact with God. The, the great blessing of the new covenant is not that we have merely the scriptures. It's that he sent his spirit that we might commune with him directly by his spirit. And so when we neglect the fellowship with Christ in the inner place, I forgot it was one of the uh, old Catholic uh, mystics. They said, uh, I was spending all my time looking, God, uh, looking for God without and I neglected him within. Yeah, Madame Guyon. He, we have the third person of the Trinity living inside of us as believers. He's come and made his home in us. And we neglect fellowship with him. And today I, I hope to draw you into a place of saying, Spirit, I need you to know my God. You are my God. And I want to know you as you are. And he's the one that illuminates. You can search the scriptures, but if you don't have the spirit inside of you, it just remains text. And you never grab hold of your God and lay hold of him uh, to know him for yourself. But the spirit illuminates the heart, as we read in our text. So I have found, speaking from experience, that one of the most dangerous things about theological pursuits is the danger of making it all conceptual and theoretical and never seeing its outworking in our actual life. I know many men that can pontificate about God, but I wouldn't want their relationship with God. Yahweh loves that we want to know him as he is through study, and it is important that we study, and I hope that you are driven to study and search out the scriptures and, and read more. I, I put something on, on Facebook yesterday. We spend so much time taking in information. We're filled with knowledge about so many things. But we have the opportunity to know our God. And we don't take advantage of knowing him and searching him out as he has revealed himself to us. May we take that time from mindless silliness <laughs> and know our God. <laughs> this is what our, many of the, the times the people of God are shaken by the world events because they don't know their God. We must know our God and we'll be unmovable when the world is shaking. For his kingdom cannot be shaken. And if you are in the kingdom of God, you should not be being shaken. But the only way this comes to pass in our lives is by knowing our God, who he is, what he's like. And because when we learn that, we are never um, disappointed. <laughs> he's always better than you think he is going in. You're like, I want to study the love of God. Well, you might think you have a revelation of the love of God, but as you dive into it, you'll find that there's no end to the love of God. <laughs> and so this is, this is, we, we need to find this, this holy fascination, this, this uh, desire, this hunger, this obsession to know God. 
This one who rescued us. This one who rules the nations and the cosmos and holds everything together by the word of his power. We, we, need to, we must know our God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. All knowledge starts with the knowledge of God. For without God, nothing can be known. For without God, nothing exists. The knowledge of God can be summarized as who God is in his nature or in his attributes, and then directly connected and flowing from that is how God functions or what he does. Who is God and what does God do? This is the knowledge of God. In order for us to accurately discover God as he truly is, we must let God define himself to us. As I said, theology cannot be done by climbing up to God through thoughts of God that we've made for ourselves that did not come from God. We must let God disclose himself to us in order for us to know anything about him at all. And that self-disclosure is per, uh, principally, <coughs> sorry, principally the scriptures. My, uh, my brother, my good friend, uh, John Richards, he always says, if we get God or the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter where we're right. We must know our God. And we don't get to just make stuff up as we go along. We, we must stand, sorry, we must stand upon his unchanging nature as disclosed in his unchanging word. See, he is, he's kind and severe. He is love and just. He is grace and truth. He is lion and lamb. He is gentle and zealous. He is gracious and holy. Most of our picking sides is due to the fact that we cannot conceive with our own minds of any one person being all of those things perfectly together. And because we can't see them in a person perfectly, we can't conceive of God like this. But this is where faith and trust to say, God, I trust you. I trust that you are perfectly loving and perfectly just. That you are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, but by no means will clear the guilty. I, I, all these things must live together because this is how God has disclosed himself to us. And so we must let him be right <laughs> and him be true. I am uh, in the middle of, of writing um, a book on God being perfect in all of his ways. And uh, it's the one that I'm furthest along <laughs> uh, writing right now. And uh, I, I wrote this down there. And I hope that this stirs hunger in your heart to know him. My desire is to know him, to know him as he really is through his self-disclosed revelation. You may understand the heartache of a lovesick follower of Christ, or maybe you don't. Maybe you've been a casual, unconverted attendee of church, and a passionate pursuit of God seems like a foreign concept, but there is more for you. God has not created us for boredom. It's time the church of our Lord becomes infatuated with her God again. I can say that for me, I want to know him. I need to know him. There is no plan B or other pursuit. I have been captured, and I love these chains. 
As the Apostle Paul wrote, I am a bond slave of Christ. I am not my own. I want to know him as he is, what he is like, and I want to learn it from his scriptures and from direct contact with his presence and from his dearest friends who know him in ways I do not. So I read a lot. <laughs> Only one subject, him, his ways, his works, his voice, his likes, his dislikes, his kingdom, his church, anything that has to do with the right knowledge of God. I want to read all types of books that seem to lift you from your chair and carry you into heaven in a rapturous vision of the grandeur of God. That is how I've decided to live my life in light of all that he is and all that he has done. I want to know what his robe dragging on the floor sounds like when he walks into a room, if that can be known. That may sound crazy, but I can't help it. I'm ruined for life. I must know my God. So why is right knowledge of God necessary? Well, ultimately, right knowledge of God is necessary because right worship depends upon it. The worship and praise of God with our lips and our hearts and our lives is the end for which we were created. As Pastor Andrew said last time, theology's chief end is doxology. The study of God is unto the worship of God. We don't just study to know things. We study so that we can become better worshipers. To praise him as he is. Uh, the Apostle Paul, after writing 11 chapters in the book of, of Romans, he explodes into praise. Uh, Andrew alluded to this uh, last time in 11, 33 through 36. He's writing, he finishes writing this beautiful discourse on theology. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That, that was the eruption of praise that happened when Paul was unfolding the knowledge of God. It resulted in worship. And that's how it, that's the pattern for our lives. The next verse, Paul, after that happening to him, worship exploding, the next verse, chapter 12, verse 1 in Romans, he tells you to lay your life down as a living sacrifice, as worship to God. He says, in light of the mercies that he has bestowed upon you, lay your life down <laughs> as worship before your God. The purpose of studying and learning God is to uh, learning of God is to be a better worshiper. Your entire life is worship. Husbands, the way you love your wives and children is an opportunity of worship. Wives, the way you love your husbands and children is an opportunity for worship to your God. Children, the way you love and honor your parents is an opportunity of worship. Employees, the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace and serve your bosses is an opportunity of worship. Everything you set your hands to is to be praise to his glory. Now to bring this back, you worship God in all of those places in direct proportion to your knowledge of God. So if you do not know him rightly, you won't love your spouse rightly. You won't love your boss rightly. You won't love your children rightly because his knowledge is how we worship him. Knowing him truly and how he is. 
It is right to say that worship is more than singing and music, but it isn't less than singing and music. It is singing and music, worship, but it's an entire life laid down. Listen to uh, Sam Storms. He says it like this. The ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. The ultimate goal. If our learning and knowledge of God does not lead to joyful praise of God, we have failed. We learn only that we may laud, praise, that word means praise, which is to say that theology without doxology is idolatry. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. So this was the beauty of the Wesley brothers in the Great Awakening. John Wesley and Charles Wesley. John was the preacher. Charles was the hymn writer. And John's theology was put to music by uh, Charles, his brother. So they would, he would preach theology and they would sing the right knowledge of God in direct proportion. That, there was just a beautiful combination of them in the great awakenings in the first great awakening sorry right knowledge of god should be the pursuit of every believer and we should resolve in our hearts that regardless of where the spirit leads we must submit must be submitted enough to christ that if there's an aspect of himself revealed in his word that offends us our allegiance to christ our savior is not swayed though our theology is challenged knowledge doesn't make things true but it makes them real to you Gaining knowledge of God is making you realize what has been true of God all along. Your encouragement from the apostle here is to know God as he opens up your understanding. They have received the spirit as evidenced in verse, um, where is it here? In, in verse 15, the first uh, verse, the evidence of the spirit is faith in Christ and love towards all the saints. He says, you've received the spirit. Now I want you to perceive the spirit. I want the spirit that's been deposited inside of you to now open up this knowledge of God, this ever unfolding knowledge of God. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, there is more to know. There is more to see. This is my personal conviction, but I believe that this is why eternity is forever. Because we will never unfold all of his glory. So forever and ever and ever, we will be blown away blown away, blown away, time and time again, for the rest of ever, looking at our God and marveling when he takes us back and shows us how he created the world and he unfolds all these things and he probably takes us on a tour of, of the earth and he says, you see this plant right here? This could have done this for you, but you didn't use it, <laughs> you know? And he'll just be unfolding, blowing our minds with all his wisdom and all his excellencies and all his glory forever. So why not start now? The Puritan John Owen says, if Christ be not heaven to you now, he will not be th him thereafter. <laughs> he will not be heaven to you later if he's not heaven to you now. <laughs> Even in Hosea, it says that there's, there was no knowledge of God in the land and everything was going wrong in the, in the land during that time. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you as being a priest before me. Because God doesn't want us to just give him something that he isn't asking for. <laughs> or something that's unworthy of him. He wants us to lay our lives down in accordance with himself revealed to us. 
That's why it's a sobering reminder that we must know him as he is in order to be the priests before him that he's called us to be. And knowing God is eternal life according to Jesus. So the greatest gift that God can give us is the knowledge of himself. One of the old uh, Puritans, you could probably find that I, I read the Puritans, but um, the Puritan Stephen Charnock, he says this concerning the knowledge of God. This, I, I read this last night, and I was like, this is going in there. Uh, knowledge of God and Christ is the life and happiness of the soul. What meat is to the body, that and more are divine truths to the soul. In the clear sight of God as the supreme good, the understanding is satisfied. The will is filled with love, and all the desires of the soul find their center of their rest. The vision of God in heaven is the satisfaction of the soul, and the imperfect knowledge of him is our imperfect felicity, our imperfect happiness. If we don't see him as he is, our happiness wanes because the experience of him in his perfections is actually what makes us come alive to all that we are, have been created to be. He continues, it is the root of eternal life, which is the, to spring up in time of mature fruit to the knowledge of him above, which is our complete happiness. True happiness arises from the truth known and goodness beloved. So let's look back at our, our text, Ephesians 1, starting in 15. But what specifically is Paul pointing out here for us to see? From what I can find in myself and, and through different commentaries that I read, the, the, the central theme is that God is sovereign and that he is omnipotent. It means that he is all-powerful to accomplish all of his purposes. And the edification of the church here is see your God as the all-powerful one, the one whose will accomplishes everything that he has set out to do. And that's why when I don't see him, I don't, when I don't see it, he's working. When I don't feel it, he's working. When I'm not perceiving what God is doing, I can rest assured knowing he is accomplishing all that he has desired to do. I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said that sovereignty is the pillow upon which the Christian lays his head. It's where we rest. So in verse 15 and 16, Paul is, is really saying here, I want you to know him like I've known him. I need you to see him the way that I've seen him. I pray that God would open up your understanding and give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation the way he has done it for me. That's why in the first, he's like, for this reason, after he's unfolded all of this in the first 14 verses, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, that means that these truths are yours. This means that you can know him because he's given you his spirit. So come and taste. Come and drink of the waters <laughs> free of charge. <laughs> he wants us to know him the way he knows him 
So I pray that God would open up your understanding to see God in his manifold glory, to know the unknowable, to search out the unsearchable, to measure the immeasurable. (laughs) Paul wants us to know the work of the Father in redemption, that we might rightly worship him because of it. Again, knowledge is for worship. The reason we learn things about God is so that we can worship him with that knowledge. It's to turn and say, God, I did not know that you were like this. Praise God. Praise you, Lord, for this is who you truly are. And so the first bit, the first through, uh, 1 through 14, we get a taste of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then, the, and then Paul takes us back to the Father. And he begins to unfold the work of the Father uh, before us here. The knowledge here that he's inviting us into is personal and intimate. It is an experiential communion that comes from the result of an enlightened heart. Matthew Henry in his commentary, he says, Now what is it that Paul prays for in behalf of the Ephesians? Not that they might be freed from persecution. Not that they might possess the riches and honors and pleasures of this world. But the great thing that he prays for is the illumination of their understanding. That their knowledge might increase and abound. And he means it for the practical and experiential knowledge. The graces and comforts of the spirit are communicated to the soul by the enlightening of the understanding. In this way, he gains and keeps possession. So the way God keeps his people is by continually unfolding himself to them. And they continually say, where else should I go? Where else can I go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. (laughs) Where else do I want to run? He keeps possession of his people by saying, here's a little bit more of who I am. Here's a little bit more of a taste of what I'm like and and how I operate. And he he continues to keep a tighter and tighter grip on our heart. And we say, Lord, I I don't want to go anywhere. In light of this, in light of who you are, I don't want to run to other lovers. I don't want to give myself to idolatry and all the pleasures of this world. I want to give myself wholly to you. Because you're too glorious to look away. You're too glorious to walk away. Satan, as Matthew Henry uh, continues, Satan takes the contrary way. He gets possession by the senses and the passions. But Christ gets possession by you through your understanding. As he unfolds truth to you, he gets a tighter grip on you because you see him as he is. The Apostle Paul helps us to know the Father in in three main things here. He he just cascades these beautiful um, points. It's in the Father's calling. It's the hope of his promises to the saints. Number two, it's his inheritance. Both to the saints, what he gives to the saints as an inheritance, and this can also be read of what inheritance the saints provide God. That the saints are the inheritance of God. So it's not just what he gives us, but what we provide him as his people. Not that he is in need but that there is a desire in the heart of God to have his people, and his inheritance is us. 
And three is his power, the immeasurable, abundant, overflowing, exceeding, unrivaled power displayed in his working, the working of his great might towards us who believe. So number one, his calling in verse 18, this is his, the hope that he's called us to. It's, I'm going to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will never hold your sins against you, and I will not deal with you according to your sins. This is good news. For the people of God, you never have to wonder if God is trying to exact revenge on you for the things that you have done. For he does not even keep it on his mind, the things that you have done in the past. He is casted into the sea. This is good news. <laughs> this is sanctification. This is him taking you from where you started and getting you to where you need to be, which is conformed into the image of Christ. This is the hope of his calling to the saints. It is glorification. It is he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And he will present us blameless before him. This is good news. <laughs> and eternal life is the hope of his calling. Unending life in the presence of God, beholding him without the presence of sin or the power of sin or the grip of sin. All evil removed and you be able to behold your God unhindered by distraction or the cares of this life. This is the hope of his calling to the saints. And his inheritance, as I said, the inheritance he gives to the saints is the adoption. We've been adopted into his family. And everything that is due Christ, you now become a partaker of. You have become a partaker of the divine nature. And you remain in that place as a believer as the unfolding of that inheritance to us is because Christ continually stands before the Father as mediator and intercessor on your behalf. As Charles Spurgeon says, we stand before God as Christ because Christ stands before God as us. And so everything that was due Christ, his perfect life, his sinless life, his perfect worship, his upholding of the law, everything, every blessing that comes, and it's, you could read it for yourself in the, the beginning of the Bible, of all the blessings that comes to the man who keeps the law perfectly, that is to be lavished upon the people of God, is now lavished upon you, not because you upheld the law, but because Christ upheld the law on your behalf. This is the inheritance of the saints. And the inheritance of the Father is that he... He receives from the saints glory and honor and praise, a redeemed holy nation of sons and daughters. And this brings pleasure to the Lord as our good father. And three, his power there in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, power, working might he's saying god's the one who had the power to accomplish it 
He's the one who worked it. And by his might, he accomplished it. <laughs> him, him, him. <laughs> this is the gospel. Behold God and fall down and worship him. <laughs> That's why the, the effective gospel presentation is not what God can do for you principally. It's who God is. Because, because of who God is, that's why he can do all those things for you. So we must know him. We must see him. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're saying, this is who God is. And your only reasonable response to the knowledge of God is falling down on your knees and worshiping him. His power, it is immeasurable, it is abundant, it is overflowing, it is exceeding, and it is unrivaled. His working and his might are, are then disclosed in six things going down. He raised Christ from the dead. He seated him. Th think, think of it from God's perspective. It's what God did himself. He's not just telling us things that happened. He's saying, I did this. I raised Christ from the dead. I seated him at my right hand. I put all things under Christ's feet. And I gave Christ to the church. And he filled the church with his spirit. And he filled the earth with the church who is filled with the spirit of God. That is why he is all in all. He is all in the believer. He fills all places in the believer. And then he is all in all because he is uh, continually permeating the entire globe with his church. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so he is all in all in that he is filling every place with his image. He is filling every place with his people that are filled with his spirit. And that is how God is all in all. We must see him in this way. We must know him in this way. We must marvel at him in this way. If you remember the... Church of Ephesus receives a letter in the book of Revelation from the Lord. And here, obviously, in Paul's writing, this is maybe just a, a few years after the church has been planted. And he's giving them kind of their first encouragements. And he's enfolding these glorious truths to them. And then when Christ writes a letter to the church of Ephesus, he says that they had forgotten their first love. And the first thing he tells them to do before he tells them to work the works that he, they did at first, it says, remember. Paul said to them, know. Know your God. Know him in these ways. And when Christ writes to them after having forgotten their God, he says, Christ says, remember me. Remember what I'm like. Remember my accomplishment of salvation. Remember what I've done. For you, remember that no one can thwart my power. Remembrance is how we remain in first love with the Lord. The reason that they had fallen from such a great height is because they had forgotten who their God is and what He had done. And if you remember, you will repent. And if you remember, you will work the good works. And if you work the good works, you have proven that immortality is yours in the gospel. But those who forget, 
do not repent. And those who do not repent do not work the works of righteousness. And the eternal state of that final one is death for remaining unrepentant before the Lord. Our perseverance in the faith is directly connected to our knowledge of God. Our continuing on and moving forward in the goodness of God, in the faith that he has called us, into the hope of his calling is directly connected to your knowledge of that hope. That's why Paul says, you must know him in this way. It's not arbitrary here. Paul is not saying, know him and figure it out on your own. He's saying, know him in this, these ways. Know him, know him in the hope of his calling. Know him in the inheritance in the saints. Know him in his immeasurable power. And then he just really can't uh, contain himself. He's just unfolding all the things that he did by his power. And we got to look at this and then we'll, we'll close. So verse 20, that he worked again, God worked, and he is the one who set his immovable will upon the task of saving his people. Even the finality of death was no match for his great might. Even when Christ lay in the tomb lifeless, death could not stop our God from accomplishing his purposes. Actually, it was in the death of Christ that God was accomplishing his purposes. He would not let Christ suffer corruption. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is now the second mention of the phrase heavenly places. This is a theme through the book of Ephesians, as uh, Pastor Andrew said last time. The heavenly places is the place of the spiritual realm. It's the unseen realm. It's not uh, the far-off, distant galaxy heaven that Plato gave us. The heavenly realm is just beyond the natural, on the other side of this material world, <laughs> whatever that might be, the intermingling of heaven and earth. And there Christ reigns. And it is the Father who seated Christ. Psalm 110, sit here until all your enemies are a footstool for your feet. This is the Father to the Son. Verse 21, and we are blessed there in that heavenly place because Christ is seated there. Not only is he there, he has taken the highest place above every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, every name forever from age to age. Christ rules the heavens and the earth because God has established his throne forever. Not only does God rule in the highest place, his rule reaches the lowest place, for God has put all things under his feet. Under his feet also means he can crush and dispose of things at his good pleasure. And if he doesn't crush and dispose it means he still has purposes for that thing that remains. And he is the head over all things. Meaning that he is Lord. He is governor. He is the mind, the brain, the control system of the church. <laughs> He's the one who tells the hand to extend. My hand doesn't have to think much because it doesn't have a brain. <laughs> My brain tells my hand to move. 
and Christ is the head of the church. His determination is, is the guiding force of all things for all time because he is the head of the church. He is the brain in the control center. He's the one that animates the body and his standards are by what or, or what the church abides by. This means that the Pope is not the head of the church. This means a bishop is not the head of the church, nor a presbytery, nor a congregational vote, nor an elder board, nor a pastor, but Christ. And Christ alone is the head of the church. The, the reformers in Scotland, uh, when the, the king was saying, you will turn back to Catholicism and you will recognize that the king is the head of the church. They laid their head down on uh, a log and said, no king but Christ, and got their heads cut off. For he is the head of the church, and no one else is. So no president, no parliament, no earthly monarch is the head of the church. Only Christ is the head of the church. Our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. What he says go and what he does not permit is off limits. And this Christ was given by the Father as a gift to the church and the church as a gift to Christ. His body who fills uh, sorry, he fills his body with himself in every way, in every one of his people. And Christ, by his spirit, has left no part of you untouched as his people. He is continually unfolding and sanctifying every part of you. Every part of you that you think is still in the grip of Satan has been loosed. The door is open to the prison. Walk out in Jesus' name. <laughs> He rules every part of you. And so for the rest of our days in this age, in this church age before Christ returns, he will have representation from every nation, every tribe and every tongue. And all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Amen. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to have a response, but I want you to think now, if you're not serving the Lord, Christ demands and commands all people everywhere to repent, to serve him with their entire lives. It is what humans, what God requires of human beings. So your faith, believer, is not a personal faith in the sense that it is to be kept to you. All people everywhere are called to repent and believe the gospel. And God governs all things by himself, by Christ who is seated on the throne. He has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And as the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, he sits in the heavens and he laughs because no one can dethrone Christ. And even when you think 
or see a circumstance where you are not perceiving the reign of Christ, the rule of Christ is still being accomplished in those things. He is putting every enemy under his feet. And he is gathering his saints from the four winds of the earth. And so we're going to have baptisms in a moment. I encourage you, if you do not know Christ, today is the day of salvation. Do not wait one more second. Do not wait one more minute. You don't have another second to waste. We are not promised tomorrow. In James, it says, you boast and say, tomorrow we will do this and that and go into this city and barter and trade. But what is your life? We should say, if it is God's will, we will live and do this or that. So today, turn to him in trust and assurance that if you lay your sins before him, he will remove them completely for you. He is trustworthy. He is perfect in all of his ways. He rules the heavens and the earth, and no one can stay his hand. Come to Christ today. Serve him for all your days. This is why you were made. You're trying to figure out your purpose in life. It was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why you are here. If you want to respond in, in what we do here is many times by responding in faith. We don't want to just have you pray a prayer with us. We want you to, by faith, identify with Christ. And that's how we do that in, in baptism, in the waters of baptism. We identify in his death by going down in the waters and we come up out of the waters with him as resurrected to new life. It is your now new identification with Christ. In other countries, baptism will cost you your life. Because now you don't just have a mere profession. You have completely identified yourself with Christ the King. So today I encourage you that if you have not been baptized, be baptized today. Pastor Andrew is going to uh, go into the back and... And he's going to talk with those that are planning on being baptized. If you haven't, weren't planning on it, we got towels for you. You'll be good. Do not waste another second. I beg you, if you do not know Christ, come to him. Lay it all down. Nothing of this world can satisfy your soul. Everything you've been searching for and longing for, finds its principal height and pleasure in the person of Christ. Do not wait another moment. He is worthy. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, 
or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.